Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I had some great falafel yesterday. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I ate out at a restaurant in the world last week. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturdays discussing education research and drinking beer. Today we are drinking Magic Drip, a barrel-aged, wheated imperial stout with Colombian coffee. It's wheated. I didn't catch that when I was reviewing the documents. And I'm excited about this because this has kind of low-key been our wheat study season. We've done a lot of wheat, but we haven't done a wheated beer that has a bunch of extra stuff on it. So I'm going to be excited. Is this going to be more of an American wheat? Is this going to be more of a wit beer? I don't know, but... Uh, let's put it to the test and find out what what do you know about wheat? It smells like what I usually smell from coffee beers. We've done a fair number of coffee beers. I smell something sweet in there. It's probably the alcohol because, audience, this is a 13.5 APV. And it is uh, dark. There's not a lot of carbonation. Oh, yeah, it definitely, it's it smells like a cocktail now that it's out in the glass. And we'll have to struggle with the taste. We'll see. What are we doing today, Mr. Ralph? Retrieval practice has a ton of research support, but we're still figuring out the when and how of its effective use in instruction. We read a series of studies comparing the impacts of post-testing and pre-testing on measures of learning, with the results showing tremendous power in pre-tests. Later, we read a study showing how local poems and songs provide viable material for reading instruction, the added benefits of local connections for student appreciation offer a powerful tool for facilitating student learning. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read pre-testing versus post-testing, comparing the pedagogical benefits of errorful generation and retrieval practice. This was written by Stephen C. Pan and Faria Sana. This was published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology, colon, Applied in 2021. I cued this paper because there's a song we like to sing regularly on this show about the difference between learning and knowing and how important it is to facilitate students practicing knowing in our classrooms and with our content. And this uh, series of studies, this is actually a paper about five experiments that were all illustrating different impacts from pre-testing and post-testing. And I just, I like the testing effect. I like thinking about retrieval practice. And so this was a, this was an immediate cue for me. Yeah. And so the, the initial parts of this paper sort of laid out this framework for um, the, I'm going to say increasing popularity of retrieval practice, the testing effect, post-testing, practicing knowing, which some of you and I, I know have, have both been thinking about for a long time. They said it's, it's, Got a lot of support support in the literature. There's a lot of recommendations for teachers. Be doing test practice, post-test practice with students. And yet, pre-testing is not getting the same attention. Yeah, uh, they had uh, suggested that some prior research with pre-testing maybe not have had the... uh as robust design and analysis as the papers that had been doing post-testing and retrieval practice type studies. So uh, they kind of wanted to revisit it with uh, some designs specifically to contrast 
uh, those two formats. I don't know. You know, we've we've done we've done episodes. We've done multiple episodes unpacking the importance of retrieval practice, like conceptually. The beginning of the story is really looking at differences between what it means to learn something and what it means to know something. There's a story that um, Peter Brown tells in the book Make It Stick about this wonderful, coherent, um, compelling lecture that uh, somebody gave describing how mitochondria function. And walking out of that lecture thinking, that is the best thing ever. Everybody in that room learned it and we got it down pat. We're going to be able to move on tomorrow. And when the students came back in the next day, they said, now, what, what was yesterday's lecture about again? What were we supposed to know out of that? And that sort of crystallizing moment around the notion that we can struggle to understand something as we're engaging with it, right? As we're listening to descriptions from the teacher, as we're making observations from class material and textbooks, from experiments, whatever it can be, we can be, we're making meaning out of the things that we're seeing, but then our brain has to take all of that information and put it somewhere. And the process of filing it, if you will, is important. And it's its own thing in our brains because we're not putting all of that understanding in one place. It's not just one big chunk of experience that goes in our brain. It gets chopped up into lots of little bitty bits. And then it gets put in lots of different places across our brain. And so if that sounds messy to you, you're right. And so the process for our brains to go back after the fact and try to find all of that information, to put it back together correctly after the fact in, in a useful way to address very often a new but related problem is its own skill. And it's something that comes with lots of mistakes when we're doing it early. And then we get better at it as we practice doing it over and over again. And so that process of rebuilding knowledge is something that we have to practice. And something that can very easily be overlooked by learners who don't have a lot of experience in you know, the, the research around what it takes to know things. And so helping students see that putting down what I know navigating sometimes the frustration of it not being everything I know I learned from before, but then making it better, addressing the gaps and filling it in and adding more material and recognizing that over time we can get better at that is that's that whole idea of retrieval practice, practicing, retrieving information back out of our brains and doing something with it on what in this, in this experimental context, we're calling the, the critical assessment. There's going to be a moment where we need to know something what can we do to prepare ourselves to be as confident as possible that we will be able to know something at this critical assessment? And practice is the short answer. But when and how we practice is something they looked at. They refer to it as the criterial test. Is that what they said? Yeah. But it, it is critical if that's going to be the one that matters, I suppose. No, let's, let's, let's think, get it right. I think, I think they use the term criterial. Uh, it is a criterial, is the criterion test that they were looking at, which is research speak for the outcome, right? That's when we take the measurement. Building understanding and storing information is actually a different biological function than identifying relevant information and bringing it out for utility. Those are two different things. And so we need to practice both. And so retrieval practice is systemically less practice in our typical edu in, in, in legacy education practices. And so recognizing that that's a skill that may have been under practiced in the past. And that's something that we need to spend more attention on now is a 
growing understanding of, of, of retrieval practice and why it's becoming more popular in the research space as time goes on. So give them opportunities to build understanding and store information, and then also give them opportunities to pull out relevant information and identify it and make connections with it to our certain circumstances. And so the intuitive way, if, if we recognize that truth, that those are differences, the intuitive way that you might apply them, like I did when I read my first retrieval practice study in 2010, uh, and I was not the first person to the game then, uh, when I read that first, I would say, okay, let's have some learning experiences. Let's then give them a low stakes interim assessment that they can review and then they can practice before we have the, the important criterion assessment at the end. And so there's a lot of research on that. There's, and it's great. It's really good. It's way better than not doing it. The, yeah. the research has, really, has been really clear about that, you know, the body of work that they're reviewing. Uh, but it's not the only way that we can do that. And so the question was, what would it look like if instead of telling them some things, then letting them practice repeating those things and then ask them to repeat them for real, what if we asked them the questions first? What if there was an approach to using a pretest as a means to sort of prompt thinking, to boost engagement, to maybe stimulate, uh, make salient some gaps in the schema. What, what if we ask them the questions first? They don't know the answers because they haven't had any experiences where that we would expect them to be able to draw from to make good answers. So they're going to get them. They're going to get like all of the questions wrong. But then we have a learning experience and then we let them attempt the criterion assessment. What would that look like? Because there's not a lot of research on it. The research that exists is flawed in some important ways. And so we don't have a lot of recommendations for teachers about how to use pretesting. So this series of experiments was really intentional about let's do a really focused, a really uh, simple model to test how good is pretesting compared to some of those intuitive approaches to, um, to post-test retrieval practice. So that's what they did five experiments to just test lots of different pieces of that question. And each of these experiments really built on the complexity of the last one. They had a very simple first experiment. Then they kind of used that as the baseline and then added some complexity for the second experiment, for the third. And so I don't think we need to go through each of those. Pretesting is good. Yeah. Pretesting was better, which I'm frankly, I mean, you know, I read the title of the paper. So like, I kind of know what to expect going in and yet I'm still surprised. Well, uh, Alpra was better. Yeah. Uh, Pretest had had value, um, and they discussed why that might be. But I do want to acknowledge that they explored many conditions. They explored where the uh, formative test was going to be in the learning sequence. They explored what kind of formative test it was, whether it was multiple choice or cued short answer response. They explored... Um, how much time between the learning experience and the formative exam there was going to be, whether it was going to be five minutes later or 48 hours later. Um, they explored a lot of different components uh, in this, and they explored whether the questions were uh, questions the students had seen before or whether they were novel questions. So there were a lot of different factors, and generally speaking, having the pretest uh, consistently in most cases, outperformed not having a pretest. Yeah. And it was never definitively beaten by post-test. Right. It was either as good as post-testing, or it's a little early to throw this in, but the, I think the implementation details matter uh, for the applicability to classrooms. I do think that. Post-testing is harder to mess up. 
it's like post tests are generally good and there are things we can do to make them better but like it's harder to break them yeah pre-testing you can you can undo the value of pre-testing in 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 a lot of cases and that's where some of the mixed results in the existing literature come from based on the way that they break down the existing research like without getting into the weeds, I was thinking about this paper. What is my the classroom should? What is the big picture takeaway? And I think honestly, my takeaway, if an assessment is formative, if an assessment is going to be for learning, then there needs to be a learning experience after the assessment. So start with an assessment, then do a learning experience, then have another assessment, and then do a learning experience. And that learning experience can you know, initially you have a you have a cold test. And what that does is it primes the individuals to recognize, I don't know this information. I have guesses about this information. I've got skin in the game because I want to find out if my guesses are on track or not, but I don't really know. So now I'm primed and curious to find out how well did I do cold. It orients the individual to what might be a valuable material during the initial learning experience. And then you have another test later and they say, okay, now I've got, not only do I have skin in the game, but I've got some experience. I've got some knowledge and I'm going to, I'm going to put some bets on the table. Here are my answers. And then you'll need feedback to address that second learning experience. So, or that second assessment. And you can do those, you can loop through those. the whole year. Yeah, do those the whole year, loop through them over and over again. Follow assessments, start with an assessment, and then follow assessments with learning experience, then reassess. Just forever. What do you know about this? Very little. Take a guess. Okay, this is what I got on paper. Now let's begin. And add to it, continue revising. And the looking at some of their later figures that kind of break down the results across all the experiments, the the when, the where, and the how of the feedback, I think is really important as I'm making my own inferences from these graphs that have not been peer-reviewed, but these are my inferences. Uh, because the pretest, one of the important preconditions for for the best versions of learning is some level of disequilibrium, some level of tension. So I oh, that's interesting. Why is that? Or I'm not sure how that would work. Or, oh, I realize I don't know that answer. You, you need some moment that makes the, the upcoming learning experience salient for you to get the most out of that learning experience. And so these, a big piece of this pretest, this pretest effect, as they have described in this paper, and as I think is probably real, is the creation of that tension of like, oh, now I'm here for it. Or as I'm in the learning experience, I can remember, oh, I got that wrong in the pretest and here's here's why. And now I can get it right later. And I can I can anchor on multiple memories of, from both the pretest and the learning experience rather than just the learning experience by itself. And so all that priming is really important, but you can let all the you can let all the air out of that really quickly if you give that feedback too quickly. If you give that feedback uh, in an uncritical way, if I'm going to use the word critical. So here's the pretest. Okay, well, here are the answers. So here's what you got right. Here's what you got wrong. Here's what it should have been. All right, now let's have a learning experience. Well, I don't have to, I don't need the learning experience to resolve the tension for my pretest. Yeah. And so now the pretest is not out competing the post-test anymore. I, I was thinking about that myself. Like you give, you give the pretest and then they have their answers down. And then it's almost like, okay, now we're going to learn some things. And I want you 
either during the learning experience or after the learning experience to revisit those answers. How, you know, how, check yourself. How do you feel about the answers you gave the first time now that we've had this learning experience compared to when you gave them initially? What changes would you make? You know, and then give them another assessment and then reiterate. Uh, so have them... I mean, this is, they didn't do this. They didn't have the students do self-assessment, but in my classroom, I think I would do that. I would give them the primary assessment or the initial formative, the initial introductory assessment, the pretest, record those answers, have a record of those answers, then having the learning experience and then say, now let's go back to that pretest. How do you feel about those answers you gave? Which ones would you keep? Which ones would you change? How would you improve them? Experience. And this paper in while I was reading this paper, I was always re also reflecting in some of your practices when you were at our school. And I know you guys, uh, I don't, did you call them blue sheets? I did get blue sheets. Yeah. And, and they were like essential questions at the beginning of, of the uh, units. And I was thinking I could do something like that. where like, when we're starting a new unit, I give them a blue sheet and I say, write down answers to these questions. Like you have to write something down. And like, you may say, I have no idea. It's like, that's correct. You will have to create an idea then. You will have to explain it the best way you can now, even if you are just making something up out of your imagination. But I want, I, you need to have skin in the game before we start the learning experiences of this unit. And then, you know, at certain benchmarks in the unit, okay, I'm going to pass back your blue sheets. And it's edit, revise, and improve those answers. How how many of them can we? How many of those questions can we address now? How many of them do we still need to work on? Okay, I'm gonna like maybe maybe every block day, you know, just like here we go. How far into this have we made practice? I'm taking them back, and that's not something I'm formally doing. Which, based on this paper, is something that would improve my practice. So I'm kind of excited about looking at that again. That's a cool connection. Like these are questions that we will address. Whereas like, no, 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 you're going to address them right now yeah. and then reflect on how you're addressing them improves over the course of a unit. Well, and it makes me think of the, the reference early on the, the I'm going to say really high effect size of the testing effect generally. Um, it's effect size of 0 0.5 and that's just a number, but it, that's pretty, that's pretty high. And I included in the show notes a way to make some sense out of that, but the, the effect size is really high. And so to be able to boost it even higher with a pretest makes me think of in my AP biology class that I taught, I really struggled with that sub that with this specific problem because we had a goal for how well we were going to do on a very specific criterion assessment at a very specific time in the year, every year. It was a big deal. And so uh, the first time we switched to really commit to like a key schema construction paradigm, we didn't hit our targets like broadly. And I identified a big piece of that just based on my experience, pretty much alone, just my experience, finding that we weren't making enough progress prior to our testing, to our like our practice tests. But write what you know about enzymes, and we'd write some things, and then we would just review it to improve the answer. It didn't continue making forward progress. And so I made a change the following year where we did continue to make forward progress in the middle of those iterative attempts. And I think that I just, through happenstance and trial and error, stumbled into this, this, this cycle that this paper formally describes of let's retrieve what we know about this simple enzyme system. And we, we, they write what they know. 
And they're like, okay, what did you get? What did you not get? And we would make some improvements. Like, okay, now uh, imagine we got a regulatory molecule that's actually we're going to throw into this mix. What's the regulatory molecule going to do? And they're like, we have no idea. I'm like, let's discuss. Let's, let's make a best attempt about that. And then we would hang our new knowledge on that same tree that we had been creating. Uh, and it really, we saw big gains in our classroom progress in the years after I started doing that. And I think that it's, it is this same cycle of you can do both for the sake of their experiment. They were using really narrowly crafted assessment items, but I don't know that very many classrooms ought to be using multiple choice tests to be driving a lot of their learning just in the first place. You don't have to limit your practice to that, even though that was what they had in this, this research and you don't have to limit it to either, or it doesn't be a pre-test or a post-test. They did it that way to compare the effects and to highlight the importance of the pretest, but we can do both. And we can just, as you said, iterate over and over and over again. Well, even they, I mean, they said you should do both. Yeah. I mean, they never said, oh my gosh, the pretests are outperforming the post-test. So cut the post-test, save some time and be done with it. They never said that. In fact, they started by saying, hey man, the post-test research is pretty robust. So like, that's cool, yo. Yeah. Let's talk about pretests. And 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 their their conclusion was, do both, bro. Yeah. We built a really simple system to make the findings clear. Yeah. But it's a really simple system. So like, you know, for your applications, do other things. There was an interesting sort of question brought up in prior research and even in sort of a briefly in their own research about does the, um, does pretesting and immediate feedback improve the performance of repeated questions that they'll see again while hurting the performance of novel questions. And there were uh, inconsistent results regarding that particular phenomenon. And the concern, the theoretical concern or hypothetical concern is that if we prime students to look for very particular answers ahead of time, will they ignore meaningful information other relevant and meaningful and applicable information because uh, they're just kind of cherry picking for the stuff that answers their preloaded questions. And uh, uh, maybe, but no, but we're, you know, that might be an error for their study to like try to pinpoint that uh, because sometimes it seemed that was happening, but other times it did not seem like that was happening. So we're inconsistent there. I would rather um, the, the, the benefits of pretesting were so broad and consistent. If there is a mistake there, I'd rather make the mistake of pretesting than the mistake of not pretesting. Well, and that's a concern from an experimental design standpoint, but I think if you're gonna if you're gonna try to take some of these recommendations and put them in a more open practice format where I'm not doing only multiple choice questions to do the pretest, but we're doing like free writing or we're doing, you know, more uh, constructed response material, then that's less of a concern because the questions are not so laser focused. Like you don't have obviously excluded information from your experiences when you have more holistic assessment items that are, you're not trying to use for research. So yeah. that's just, that problem kind of goes away. The, I want to highlight in particular, cause I made a note in my notes um, experiment number four was looking at durability of knowledge over longer periods of time and longer periods of time is just a couple of days rather than a couple of minutes. But still, if you look at the plot of effect sizes and where pretesting really outperforms post-testing, 
Experiment 4, on the multiple choice in particular, is all by itself. Like, it is such a such a high outperformance of pre-testing compared to post-testing for durability of knowledge, which makes me think again of my AP biology class, because that was another piece of my experience was we went back to, I had schedule of like review time right around the criterion assessment where in April, we're going to talk about macromolecules that we initially learned and practiced in September. And so under the assumption that they have forgotten things, let's go back and let's refresh it. And when I went to this looped paradigm of building and constructing and improving, I pulled out those first review items that were literally the same level of complexity, the same like prompt structure as the day we learned it, trying to maximize the struggle. And they crushed it. They were like, yeah, we know these answers. Why are you giving us this information? And I was like, I don't know. Let's talk about other things Uh, because the, the review was so grossly unnecessary. And that shows up in their data here of if you're working for durability of their competency for the long term. That was one of the most dramatic findings where pre-testing outperformed post-testing. In the fifth experiment, one of the conditions was giving a practice test or having multiple reading sessions with a practice test arranged at some point in the reading sequence. And when the students were asked to read multiple times and then take the test at the end, that was the worst condition. And so I want to re- I want to reflect on that because that actually is often the study model that we implicitly imply our students to engage in. Like, here are your notes. Read them. Good job. Read them again. Good job. Now let's have a test. Here's the study guide. It says the things that are in your notes. Read it again. Yeah. Review the chapter, read it again, and then take the test. Reading it once, then reading it twice, and then taking the test is the worst of all of the experiences. And so I just wanted, I thought that that was noteworthy because so often in so many places, in so many, like at so many educational levels, in so many contexts, that's kind of the legacy practice is that here's the information, consume it, consume it again, take a test. Which makes sense from the standpoint of if students have no explicit training in what it looks like to learn, then they're just going to repeat. They're going to they're going to emulate the things that they've that they have done that they've seen. And the only things they've seen are a teaching experience. That's the only tool in their toolbox. And so if they want to do well, they will just use that tool again. And so it it underscores the importance of explicitly not just doing, but also discussing yeah. The testing practices as a means of continued learning. The other thing that's important is the added complexity of foregrounding ignorance with adolescence. Because in a K-12 setting, we are working with people who are not adults. And this study was done with adults in every context. The first three studies were done with uh, a median age of 35 The last two studies were done with undergraduate students. So different samples. I'm not sure that that changes any of their interpretations, but we should acknowledge their sample profile changed dramatically partway through this series of experiments. But none of them had a median age below 18. In fact, I suspect they didn't have a single under 18 participant in this entire series of studies. So we need to recognize the power of this learning model is associated with people who generally, although not uniformly, have 
have a fully developed prefrontal cortex. And students in K-12 classrooms do not. Which means their emotional uh, response to... They've made fewer mistakes to be at peace with. And they have less understanding of the social fabric within which they're making those mistakes. And so they are especially sensitive. Because a 35-year-old might not really care if they don't know the second largest Saturn moon. Especially one who is taking a, a study assessment online for money because that's how they get money. Like, they specifically understand weird stuff is going to happen here. Just roll with it. But a 14-year-old who has to publicly admit to their peers and teacher that they don't know Saturn's second moon might have an intense negative emotional response. In fact, if you teach lots of adolescents, it's inevitable that somebody will. Yeah. Make better mistakes. For our second segment, we read Literary Embodiment on the Levels of Comprehension in the Balak. This was written by Kevin Miko Lusano. This was published in the International Journal of English Language Studies in 2021. This paper was a little different than the papers we've usually read, and I appreciated its refreshingness. It was about poetry, and I love poetry. Some of my favorite experiences in high school where my poetry uh, were poetry units in my English class, and some of my favorite experiences in college were my poetry units in my collegiate literature classes. When I think of English and I think of the experiences that I loved, it was with poetry. And I kind of want to park on the idea of poetry for a second because I had a really similar experience in high school. Of, uh, you know, I, I've had a focus on STEM and biology and chemistry for as long as I've been a person. And I had this misconception in high school that I, I should not be a poetry person. And yet I've been I've been writing songs in this journal that I carry around since high school. And I, I do my show notes in it now, like I'm holding it in my hand this very second. And so writing poetry and thinking about poetry has been a really important outlet in my life for as long as I've been anything that approximates an adult. And so I cued this paper because we have this STEM background, this biology background. And so I know that the show skews STEM focused content when we do content focus, but I think that humanities are important, just as important. Like it's not an antagonistic relationship. We need all of it. And so I want to spend time intentionally, periodically looking at content foci in reading and literature and humanities because I think it's important. And it's something that we need to be intentional about tearing down the boundaries between people and that material because there's no such thing as a poetry person. Like they, everybody can engage with poetry. They can engage with artistic media, whatever their form. And that was something that I struggled with for a while in my life. And so I want to be intentional about modeling. I can be a scientist and I can like math and I can write poems. And there is no conflict there. Absolutely not. The idea that there are poetry people and not poetry people is totally fallacious. And uh, we, like, anyone who likes any lyrical music ever is a poetry person, which is everybody. Um, there's a poster at my school right now that has uh, a bunch of lyrics posted on, on the bulletin. And then it has the heading Taylor Swift or famous poet. 
and it's a false dichotomy because Taylor Swift is a famous poet. If if you, if there's any song you like having stuck in your head or you like to sing, you enjoy poetry. Uh, and that's just part of the human experience. And so this paper is published to look at how we can use local works of art, like poems and songs, to connect students in classrooms with their local artists and creators so that we can have more engagement, we can have greater sense of place, and more options to connect students in the classroom with people who look like them making art and creating literature in their communities. This paper was written by uh, a teacher working in the Philippines, and it was in response to some legal changes in the Philippines that said teachers needed to use local literature sources in their classroom, which I think is, uh, that's, that's a kind of amazing that that's, that's a law, but nevertheless, that was the case, but it also created some complications for teachers. One of the fundamental challenges in connecting with anything that's not broadly relevant, like defined local poetry, well, local is a fairly narrow unit of geography, so there's not going to be generally available collections of materials or curriculum resources to support local curriculum because local is different between school districts and between locations. And so there's a challenge that the author identified in teachers complying with this legal mandate to connect with local schools when there's not a readily available well of resources to support them in making those curricular connections. And so what he was laying out was an approach to say, how can I work with students to identify things in the community that resonate and then using them as a, as a means to do reading instruction? And then is that an effective medium through which I can do reading instruction because there are people who may have some hesitance in saying I can't teach meaningful reading if I can't work from the the canon and that's an air quotes canon like whatever you define the canon to be he said well what would it look like we say what resonates with you let's work with that yeah this paper was really uh I appreciated it as sort of a, a like hey we've got some local mandates how do we navigate them well, here's one way it's possible. Let's get to it, people. When I read this, it it felt to me that uh, if I if I read it correctly, that the high schoolers were helping choosing which poems they were going to use, and some of those poems apparently were popular music. Yeah, I I didn't recognize any of these songs, of course, because I don't speak uh, I don't speak Tagalog, which I think is the language that these these poem titles are in. I think because I wasn't sure and they weren't really all that described in the po- in the paper so I did some googling to try and find some of the poems online and the ones that I did find were songs and so I what I enjoyed I listened to a few of them what I enjoyed was I could picture these songs like playing out of teenager cars or boomboxes or phones of like oh yeah that's I don't profess to be a cool person necessarily but like that I could imagine that playing out of somebody who is cool like that that makes sense. Those are songs. Okay. So this is pop music is what, where I operationalize this in my head. And so what's the value of that? Is Can we teach uh, literary poetry? Can we teach analysis? Can we teach communication? Can we teach our, 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 our language standards from pop music? Can we do that? 
And I think by and large, the answer is yes. What uh, what he did was looked at data generated out, out of each of these poems related to five levels of comprehension. And the details are in the paper if you'd like to go read them, but the short answer is yes. And what I found most compelling in one of the summary tables, table 11 in the paper, was that it's not just that students have high scores on these levels of understanding across all songs, but that there's a mix of scores. That some of the sections for some of the songs, students are scoring high, and for some of the sections and some of the songs, students are scoring low. And that's really valuable from an instructional standpoint, is we can challenge students using some of this material from poems and songs to say, what do you understand from this? What are they trying to evoke? What are they, what are they trying to imply? What, what do you infer from all of this? And then what else can it be? How can you justify those claims? And students don't immediately understand all of it, especially when you think about it being possible to conflate familiarity with understanding. A 14-year-old, so, so you know, I'm a 40-year-old man, and so I listen to a pop song, and sometimes I think, oh, yeah, that's that's a good line, because there's like three or four different ways to interpret that line, but a 14-year-old may only have one way to interpret that line. And though that 14-year-old knows that song by heart, and they can perform it, and they're amazing at it, there is still material about the human experience and communication and interconnectivity and imagination that I can teach using that piece that the student is already intimately familiar with. And uh, using, and be even more so because they are familiar with it. Yeah, because how often I can think of examples where my English colleagues are fighting the did you read it fight, right? They're, here's my assigned material. Now, what can I do to make my students read so that we can be at least a surface level understanding of the content so we can have these conversations? And for these sorts of poems and songs, they're already listening to them. So you don't have to fight the did you read it fight. You can just start at the richer conversations like what does it mean? What are the alternative compl complicated um, interpretations of it? Or what are the other contexts by which it might mean something else? Or to whom? Might it evoke different things? And you don't say, just what does it say? Because they do already know it. Or they were willing to listen to it because it was a song that appealed to them. And that's something that was borne out in the author's data. The appreciation scale is one of them where, by and large, students are reporting really, really high numbers. And like that... You know, I think about my number one experience in high school where I was taking I was taking American history as an 11th grader and the teacher, he had a number of experiences throughout the course of the semester anchored in songs. And that was something that was like a big deal in our student body. When you get to junior year, you get to do song analysis. It's going to be awesome. Like you can't wait till you get there. Oh, you're a junior. You're having that experience. Good for you. That's going to be great. And I was really excited about it. And you know what? It lived up to the hype. We spent time analyzing. We didn't start the fire. And like there's so much history alluded to in that song. And so what he said was, check out the song. This is something that you've heard before, right? And we're like, sure. Like, what do those things mean? Do you know what those words mean? And we're like, I don't know. Like, cola wars is something, right? We know what cola is. And they're like, let's stop and let's know what this is. And we did. And it was a really satisfying project to unpack what was in this art. And I think that's an example of it resonated with us. I, as an adult man, still think about that project because it was so engaging. It was 
I appreciated it. And so you don't have to fight with them about engaging with the material because you're meeting students where they are currently. Ultimately, using locally sourced poetry is an act of humanizing pedagogy. Your students can identify with the emotional journeys of the described by the poet. They may even identify with the poet directly as it is someone from your community that has shared ties by your students. Frank Herbert's Dune, which has some incredible uh, social commentary, but is also a traditionally privileged white male narrative. Or we can look at local voices that share more demographic overlap with our students from a perspective that is closer for them to, to access and say the same literary message or a similar literary message or a valid literary message. If our goal is to help students develop their co nuanced communication skills, we can use more sources than the traditional standard account. Local poetry is one way to break out of that paradigm. So this is a so this is a paper about local connections. Well, okay, who who what local? Like where is this? Uh, and then I got to methods section, and uh, he described it as taking place um, with the assistance of local folks in Libagon, Southern Layette. And I didn't recognize any of those words. I didn't know where that was at all. And so I looked it up. Uh, I was like, okay, it's in the Philippines. Got it. And so then I was like, okay, so who's, who is the author? So I Googled the author. Uh, and what I found was a majority of news reports um, because the author gave a series of quotes for the community out of which this was done in Southern Layette was hit by a Category 5 typhoon, Typhoon Odette, in December. But uh, the quotes, like, this is a devastating storm that um, did extensive damage to the community. And so the community who has taught us everything we have learned from this segment has experienced devastating damage. And so in the show notes, I've got a series of links here. Um, the quote, a link to the news story where um, where the author gives the quote. There's another news story identifying how uh, some relief agencies have provided aid to thousands of people who are displaced by this storm. And so I think that anybody who has found anything valuable from this segment, um, I'd like you to really give some deep consideration to whether we can do anything to support the people who have given us the opportunity to do this learning. And there's a link to donate to a foundation that I by my best understanding, is doing good relief work in the area so they can rebuild their community because this whole piece is about community connection and connection doesn't mean anything if we're not there for them when they need it. We're in this together. How was the beer? So the first thing I'm aware of in the beer is it has got the sharpness of a high alcohol beer, which we both know it is. And we've been talking about it a lot. I really get coffee and beer, the two things that my uninitiated palate understand. The coffee on the front end and then the like sharp sweetness of the alcohol at the end. Uh, I don't, I'm not aware of any piece of the wheat. 
So I feel a powerful, sweet, dully acidic front taste. It is dully acidic. It is sweet, and it it's it's it kind of fills my mouth. It's powerful. Then there's a transition time, and I think if we're gonna taste the wheat, I think it's in the middle. And then at the end, there is this soft, bitter coffee aftertaste. Well, uh, regardless of that, uh, I definitely enjoyed this beer. Sure. Yeah. yeah. The strength. I like strong beers, just broadly speaking. So 13.5 and, and the clean finish. Big fan. I appreciate Magic Drip. So keep sending us those beer recommendations, those paper recommendations. This is better together. We have a lot of fun dialogue with the community. So let us know what's going to be useful for you as we go about finishing the rest of the semester. We will see you next month. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research and struggle well.